Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. My name's Kyle. And my name is Matthew. Hello, and welcome. Yes. We're glad that you're able to join us today. Uh, A little bit of old business. Before we get started on today's episode, I just want to check in with you about um, any sort of feedback that you got from the previous episode about David Bowie. I know we've got uh, some really good responses generally, but uh, how are you feeling about it, and have you got... Uh, I have. I've had two people reach out to me uh, personally people that I know in real life who have listened to the episode that have both said that it was uh, very emotional for them to listen to because they've both been in similar positions. So, you know, again, if you've uh, listened to that episode, you know, kind of what we're talking about. Uh, I want to say it again, you know, there are people out there who who want to listen to you, who, who want to talk to you. You are important. Please, uh, if you are thinking about doing anything serious, Get help. Talk to somebody. There's a helpline, which I'll post again in the uh, uh, show notes for this. You know, go online. Sometimes it's it's something little. You know, I mean, go get yourself a soda instead. You know, right. go go think, buy a thing of cookies. Um, you know, especially now we're kind of in a weird spot in the world right now without dating this too much. But uh, I know that by the time this comes out, hopefully we'll be a little bit farther past this. But uh, I know that there are a lot of people right now that are uh, going through a lot of stress. Um, please take care of yourselves. Do what you need to to uh, not self-medicate, uh, <laughs> to take care of yourselves, to, to self-support. Yeah, it was a very valuable episode, I believe. Uh, very important. And I got some great feedback about it. So Yeah, you were saying the other day that uh, several people online have uh, tweeted yep. and uh, responded on Facebook to yep. it reached out about the power of music and how important that medium we kind of uh, involve ourselves in, how important that is. Yeah. So 
So yeah, like Kyle said, I'm not sure when anyone's going to be listening to this episode, but this is our first recording since the coronavirus pretty much shut down our personal work industry mm-hmm. and the city where we live. <laughs> um, our hearts go out to everyone affected by the shutdown and the illness, which is pretty much all of us. Um, some have been more affected than others. Trying to look at this as a bit of an opportunity, an opportunity to record a little bit more, get a bunch of projects done around the house, uh, but most importantly, as a chance to find ways to help those who are less fortunate than others. If you have the resources to help, please find ways to do that. Yes. Uh, I know that I personally am luckier than a lot of people, and therefore I feel like it's my responsibility to find ways to help others. So if you can, do. On a somewhat related note, as we are dealing with the social distancing and self-quarantine and all the future phrases of the year, uh, there's no better chance to listen to some music. Pull those old CDs or vinyl or Spotify some old stuff, stuff you've never heard of, and then let us know what you're listening to. We want to hear, and maybe you'll spark some interest for other people, which is really what the uh, mission statement is of this podcast, is get other people listening to music. That would be great. I mean, it's it's definitely a good time to to dig out the stuff that you haven't uh, haven't listened to as a whole as a whole album in quite a while, and uh, give it a listen. See what uh, see what you have forgotten about. I guess is a good way to put that. See if you can find stuff that uh, uh, you know you used to like and has sat on a shelf somewhere for a while. So this week uh, we are talking about the album "The Boy Who Knew Too Much" by uh, international recording artist. Mika. Mika. And it is uh, it is pronounced Mika. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people say Micah. It is Mika, and it took me forever to find an actual pronunciation. It's in a the only place I could find it was in a an article on the BBC's website from like 2007. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and it's like literally the opening line was like Mika pronounced M-E-E-K-A. And I was like, aha, finally, because I've never I'm sure that I've heard people pronounce it on, uh, you know, videos in in uh, in audio before, but uh, I had never actually seen a pronunciation that was definitive. So I'll, I'll take that as definitive. That's funny that you even say it. I didn't think of it any other way. Like I just saw it and I just assumed it was Mika. It never occurred to me that that might be pronounced Mika. The but... thing that was, I've always pronounced it Mika too, and the the thing that really confused me was. Uh, Learning several years ago that his it, where it came from was his mother's nickname for him was Mika, but she spelled it M I C A because his real name is Michael. Um, and if you read it like that, it looks like Micah. That looks like Micah. Yeah. And seeing that, I was like, oh. And then he just switched the C for a K because he said it looked more fun and more interesting. Hmm. And it's like, oh, so maybe he does want it pronounced. Micah, but then all the pronunci- like I said, I finally found a pronunciation. It is Mika. We we know that now. So this, uh, since this was your choice, Kyle, um, uh, what can you tell us about Mika? Oh, all right. Uh, his real name is Michael Hollabrook Penniman Jr. That's very very official. Uh, very official sounding. Uh, he's actually originally from uh, Beirut, Lebanon. Um, he was born in uh, August eighteenth, nineteen eighty three. There, right before they had a huge war. Um, so when he was not even quite one year old, the, his, his parents fled with him, obviously, and his other siblings to Paris for about a year. Uh, and then they finally moved to London. Um, he's very, uh, he's very frequently because of this kind of backstory 
and because of his musical talent later on, he's so frequently compared to Freddie Mercury, mm. who, you know, very similar um, parents were from different places, ended up in, you know, a city together, fell in love, and then had to leave because of, you know, strife, basically, and then ended up in London. Um, and then, you know, obviously they became huge musical talents mm-hmm. because of that. So, yeah, he's, he's trained at the Royal College. Yes. Uh Music in mm-hmm. London, also classically trained in vocals by a Russian opera professional, which is pretty evident. Mm-hmm. Ala Arkadov is her name. Ah. And I, I tried to look her up. I could not find a whole lot of recordings or, um, I mean, there's some information on her online, but a lot of it is not. I couldn't just find a recording that I was like, yes, that's definitely her. Gotcha. So This record, Boy Who Knew Too Much, is Mika's second record, mm-hmm. released in 2009. Mm-hmm as the follow-up to his debut album, Life in Cartoon Motion, which was quite successful. Yes. All over the world, with the exception, pretty much, of the United States. Pretty much, yeah. Um, it was huge in France. Sold six million copies worldwide, which yeah. is a pretty damn good album, yes. in my opinion. Yeah, very good. Um, as an aside here, Kyle, mm-hmm. you seem to have a knack for uh, picking records that not only uh, pique my curiosity, <laughs> but also confound me. <laughs> um, dirty Projectors. That's episode seven at www.audiojudo.com for all you keeping score at home. Uh, was certainly that way for me. And while this record I feel is like, like a little easier to listen to, it oh, gives me yeah. a similar feeling. So I like it in spots, and then I really don't like it in spots. That's good. And it seems to change every time I listen to it. So, <laughs> um, one of our listeners recently wrote to me and said that uh, he was referring to you and I. He said, I like the cantankerous Gen Xer meets a less grumpy millennial thing you guys have, <laughs> which is what I feel your choices have brought out of me. So <laughs> That's the best explanation I think I've ever heard for this podcast. It's, uh, that, it's pretty accurate. That might have to go into the description of the... <laughs> a cantankerous Gen Xer meets a less grumpy millennial? Yeah, I That's like that. <laughs> So, uh, so out of those two records, I do like this one more than the first one. Yes. Seems like the first, he was kind of trying to emulate like a whole bunch of people. This record seems like he's kind of finding his way uh, to his own voice, progressing. Yeah. I kind of feel like, you know how most people consider the first album by a band, their freshman album, and then the next one is their sophomore album. Sure. I kind of think of his albums as more of like his childhood album his adolescent album, and then everything he's done after that as his adult albums. Mm, Okay. This is definitely, what's funny is I actually picked this album specifically because um, out of his five albums, and I'm not super familiar with No Place in Heaven. I've only listened to it maybe once or twice, but I think out of all all five of his major albums, um, this is actually one of my least favorites. Okay. But I picked it because I think that it showcases the most growth in his career. Because at the beginning, it's very much this, it's still the kind of the sounds of uh, life in cartoon motion. Mm-hmm. It's very much that kind of loud, childish sound. And then the very last track on here is much more of what you hear from him later on. Okay. And so if you go listen to- um, It's a very critical point of view move by you. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to decide because- I actually really like uh, The Origin of Love from uh, 2012, mm-hmm. and uh, his newest one is uh, My Name is Michael Hollabrook from 2019. Mm-hmm. They're both very, very good albums, and they're both they're both um, much larger, more adult sounds. They have a lot more depth to them than this album, 
But right. uh, this album, like I said, not only is it, do I think that it shows kind of it's an in-between album between his childhood and his adulthood. It's his adolescent album. Okay. Um, but not only that, it was also uh, it, the first album that I heard uh, from uh, uh, Mika. And uh, it was also kind of, it hit right at that point in time. Uh, you know, it came out in 2009, which was right when I was going through, I just moved back in with my parents because I had kind of bottomed out in life. And we've mm-hmm. talked about that before. And then kind of on the upswing. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of, uh, like I said, I picked this because I didn't want to showcase his what I think is his best work, which is The Origin of Love. I wanted to showcase something that people could listen to and say, okay, I kind of like this, and then go grow into the next album. Go listen to it on your own and, and see what you think of it. Very judicious of you. Thank you. So uh, reading a bunch of critical reviews of the record, it doesn't really offer any insight or consensus because the reviews are literally all over the place. Yeah. Uh, transcendent drama queeniness to make La- Lady Gaga sound like Woody Guthrie <laughs> to a technicolor <laughs> pop explosion designed for throwing your jazz hands up in the air. Mind you, both of those quotes are from the exact same review. <laughs> uh, pretty much every review that I read is that same way. That kind of They whoop. kind of are all over the place. I don't I don't think that anybody really loved this and I don't think anybody really hated it. I think that's fair because that's a pretty good assessment of where I'm at. But like a good musical soldier that I am, I listened to this record multiple times. Good. And I can tell you I am impressed with the range of his voice and the musicality of his songs. And I'm equally disappointed in the lack of depth in his songs. Because with the heaviness of his life, leaving a war-torn area, moving frequently, plus his sexuality and those hurdles that he would encounter typically, you would think he would be able to go a little deeper than he does. Everything just has this sheen to yeah. it, this just high gloss. And the good news is he gets over that in the next couple of albums. That's good to hear. So, and I think that that, uh, since you brought it up, we should talk about his sexuality a little bit. Sure. Because I feel like um, he kind of went through this period where there were uh, his his manager and the record company were telling him he can't be openly gay. They were saying, look, that's going to tank your music career right now. You can't do that. Which is just... The most ridiculous point of view in the music industry. Yeah, and I feel like especially, you know, this is not 1977. Correct. This is 2007. I mean, this is 13 years ago from when we're recording this. Right. You're not Rob, Rob Halford and Judas Priest. Exactly. In 79. You're not, is, you're not Elton John. This is, yeah. or Freddie Mercury. Right. Uh, and I feel like to we've me, come a long way since then. Yeah, and to me, that still seems so crazy. But what's really funny to me is whenever he was asked about it, there's tons of quotes from him saying, and you see him kind of grow into it. Because in the beginning, you know, people would ask him about it and he'd say, well, I don't like to put labels on it. You know, I don't like to, uh, you know, I I don't want to label my sexuality. I'm open to relationships with people that I like, not, you know, based on their their gender or or who they identify as. Um, And then he kind of grows into it more. And later he kind of says, well, I'm probably bisexual. And then later on he basically says, you know, I'm, I'm gay. And he's been uh, dating the same guy for, I think, 10 years now. And I just realized I didn't write his name down. So my apologies. But uh, anyways, yeah. What I do think is very funny about that is, first of all, every one of these albums has stuff that is so thinly veiled. Like, oh, dude, you're gay. There's a song on this album called One Foot Boy. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. <laughs> we know what that is. <laughs> you know, and what's really funny to me, too, is whenever he's quoted about that 
whenever he's quoted as saying, you know, oh, I don't like to put labels on this stuff. Immediately afterwards, you see like Mika being interviewed by Queer Magazine or, you know, Mika interviewed by Q Times or Mika Uh interviewed by like, you know, Gay Daily. And it's like, come on, man, you're answering those questions in a gay magazine. Right. You know, but it's growth. It it takes time, you know, for everybody to to get to where they can clearly talk about it openly. And and he finally kind of got there. He's also a pretty private person. So I feel like a lot of that plays into. Right. And I sense that he's fighting that like pretty consistently on this record. Yes. His, his wanting to be honest and then his overwhelming need for privacy oh, yeah. are kind of conflicting at the same time. So you're not exactly sure what you're getting. So everything on it is like not everything, but a lot of this record has like it's just seems a little fake. Yeah. And it's like you just want them to to take that next step. So I don't know if you're ready. We can do the uh, track by track. If you're Yeah, ready. let's do it. So, so. First first song is We Are Golden. Just kind of the, the hit from this album. This I, is the one that got a little bit of radio play. It's quite the opening statement. Yeah. So it's like all of the shine and extreme production are right there for the taking as soon as this record starts. Mm-hmm. Um, the choir thing is a little cheesy and unnecessary, I feel. I think that it's kind of a... A heavy-handed, like, I feel like this is the song that is explaining, hey, this is my adolescent album, and I'm growing up from being a child to being an adult, because everything in this has, like, two sides to it. Right. So, like, uh, he does this back-and-forth thing, kind of representing that change from being a child to being an adult, where you have the gospel choir, Mm -hmm. which represents adulthood, and then a children's choir that's literally screaming, like, you know, in the background, and it's that representation of, okay... I'm growing up. I'm going from being a child to being an adult. Right. Same thing with his voice, even. He's going, he does that thing where when he's singing normally, oh, he sounds like an adult. And then he goes into that high falsetto where you're like, oh, that's much more of like a, a children's sound. Yeah. He's got a vocal acrobatic thing going on. Yeah. He keeps sliding and it's very effortlessly. Yes. Mind you. It's, oh, he's it's very incredible. good at it. Yeah. He sounds, goes from one moment from sounding like Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins to Freddie Mercury to David Bowie, all within the span of 15 seconds. It's no small feat for sure. No. His voice is, it's really nice to listen to. I'm just not sure that it's all that necessary to do. I feel like he's he's doing the, uh, if you can do it, you should do it. And I kind of feel like that's, that might partially be a result of his first album being so successful and everybody saying, oh, now you're successful, do whatever you want. Um, So he was like, well, let's bring in, you know, two separate choirs and let's, you know, ramp it up. Yeah. Let's do a whole bunch of production work and let's and uh, I'm going to be really curious to see. I want after this, I think you should go listen to his at least two of his next three albums. I've listened to them like once, once or twice over. Yeah, Uh, they're excellent. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely growth. You're right. There is like step to step. There is there is growth. And lyrically, it's really clearly about, like you said, that. 18 to 21, almost 
post-adolescent yeah. section of time where we all think we're kind of invincible to everything. And there's so much, there's a lot of angst in the lyrics about not giving a damn about what your family thinks, you know, where you come from. And they, you know, there's a line that says, I live for glitter, not for you. Yeah. And there seems to be resolution at the end that all that partying and ignoring responsibilities that he shed for so long took its toll. And now he's kind of alone wondering if it was all worth it. What's really interesting to me about that too is um, the music video mm-hmm. is fantastic. If you get a chance, I'll put a link in the show notes if I remember. Go check it out. The music video starts with a really close-up shot of a cassette tape. And then he puts it in a cassette player and pushes play. And then the music video happens. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he takes it out, flips the tape over, puts it back in and pushes play. And the song starts over again. And oh. to me, it's like, oh, that was something obviously on an album that's kind of hard to do. But in the music video, I really feel like he's saying, this is it. We're doing this over and over and over again, trying to grow. Interesting. But it's something that, uh, yeah, I don't, I feel like it would have been very difficult to do the combination of, of showing and telling that you can do in a music video. I feel like there wasn't a good way to do that on the album, but it is there in the music video. And I thought that was an interesting tidbit. There's also a really cool uh, behind the scenes uh, making of uh, We Are Golden music video on, uh, I saw it on iTunes. Um, I'm sure it's out there on YouTube as well. Cool. Blame it on the girls. Second track. Yeah. Once again, I think he fails from not going deep enough. Yes. Um, I don't want to keep harping on this because there are plenty of great songs out there in the, in the rock music world that are super shallow, but I feel like he's tackling an important subject matter and not resolving it. So it's hard to explain, but he gets right there and then pulls back, which is frustrating kind of for a listener. So for me, this song is about a man who has uh, pretty much everything, but feels like he has nothing and then blames everyone else around him for feeling like that instead of taking responsibility and turning himself around. So wishing he was ugly so he wouldn't have the problems is a nice, interesting, that's an interesting lyrical twist. Yeah. And wishing uh, uh, at the same time, we're kind of looking at this guy and only wishing we had his problems instead because they seem pretty insignificant to us. But there has to be some sort of realization that we all have problems and they all seem important and world shattering to us specifically. That whole don't judge someone until you've walked in their mile or a mile in their shoes yeah. sort of thing. So um, I read a bunch of reviews about this song that this was somehow about bisexuality because of the blame it on the girls, blame it on the boys yeah. thing, but I didn't hear it that way. I don't either. Um, I do. I do feel that there is obviously an element of possibly trying to to cover up the fact that you are. Uh, uh, gay or bisexual or queer or whatever uh, in this song, but I don't think that it's the primary motivator behind this song. I think a lot of that is read into it as well as kind of a hindsight thing mm-hmm. where people say, oh, well, he he was trying to cover that up at the time, so now we look at the song and it's absolutely about that. Right. I feel like there's a lot of that. Yeah. Like, like, I, like I understand what his sexuality is, but there, there seems like a lot to a lot of a lot of reviews that I've read are are really trying to like slap that label on every single lyrical point on here that would reference a guy as opposed to a girl. Yes. Well, he must be talking about how he's having a difficult time with his sexuality. I'm like, well, some of it could just be lyrical noise and not necessarily something so yeah, you know, so complicated. So I think a lot of people do that in retrospect instead of just taking it at face value. 
um, the problems in this song are are pretty universal. Yeah, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be about sexuality. It applies to any gender. Like, I'm sure, women are looking at themselves, going, "I got nothing," and they're beautiful and smart and talented, and I don't have anything. I'm like, "Well, you got everything to you," but you know, I don't know what you're feeling, and that's that's kind of the respect for humanity. Being able to look at someone and go, I, you know, I don't know what your problems are, but they seem significant to you. Yeah, so, to have some empathy. Uh, musically speaking, the song's a little too American Idol for me. Yeah. Production-wise, it's brilliant, but uh, it's just a little too much, dog. <laughs> I got a look from Randy. Yeah. <laughs> Randy gave me a look. It's just a little too much, dog. It is a little too much, dog. <laughs> too much. Although, uh, you know, he does do a lot of those shows. Isn't he, he on the, he was the Voice on, Europe or the or I want to like say the Voice UK and yeah. maybe X Factor Italy. Yeah, multiple. I know he's been I on for, a couple. I, I honestly forget exactly which shows, but he has been on several of them as a judge and as a performer. A judge and a performer. Judge and a performer. Yeah, mm. not at the same time. Oh, he doesn't judge himself. Oh well, that's too bad. That'd be a good classy move. <laughs> Rain. Is the third track. Yeah, this is a standout track for me. It is. Um, his voice is really special on this song. And for the most part, very much him, I feel. I don't feel like he's trying to emulate anybody at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then I say for the most part, because holy cow, am I the only one that hears a shit ton of Pet Shop Boys on this part? There's definitely some influences in there. Pet Shop Boys, <laughs> a lot of uh, 80s new wave kind of stuff. Yeah, and I said, I wrote it down. I'm like, it's so predictable and poppy, and I'm instantly transported to the 1980s alternative stuff like Depeche Mode and New Order, and of course, Pet Shop Boys. And that's probably most likely why I love it so much, because mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for that nostalgic sound, <laughs> and this does that pretty effectively. This is definitely a song. I, I know I've heard at least three different remixes of this song that are like club remixes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, that makes sense. Yeah. And I was like trying to wonder what this song was about, and I really had to stop and give a shit for a second because I was so like wrapped up in the sound that I didn't care. <laughs> but it seems to be about a relationship that one person is clearly trying to change the other person, making them more ordinary, less like the person they really want to be. And I feel like that relationship ends by the end of the song. And the rain, you know, is it tears? Mm-hmm. Or is it when it rains, it pours type of, type of mm. thing? It's left a little ambiguous, which I don't mind. A little ambiguity. Yeah. You have other stuff about this No, song? That's, that's pretty much, I just wrote, I feel like it's about a relationship. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. See, sometimes, that's the podcast for today. Yeah, that's sometimes, a... uh, sometimes <laughs> we're on the same, uh, same level here. All right, it's, good. Uh, that's yeah. A... That's okay. But uh, here's my question, though. So Rain is about a relationship. Yeah. The next track, Dr. John. I feel like Dr. John is probably a psychologist. Do you think he had to go to the psychologist after after the relationship from Rain? So that's if you're, and I know you you like structured narrative mm-hmm. of a record. So yeah, I would think potentially, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So 
uh, Mika, I, I read an interview with Mika about this particular song, and he said, um, quote, uh, when you've had too much to drink and you're reminded of things you'd rather forget, I always wished there was this mystical figure I could talk to. Ooh. I started to call him Dr. John. He's this triangular-shaped, perfect older man with just the right ingredients of madness and humility. He's got a big white beard, and he's covered in feathers that he steals from his pet peacock. Wow. So there you go. Holy crap. Right? I wish I would have read that interview. That That's sounds amazing. Just laid out right there for you. So this song has a lot of Beatles reference in it, I feel yes, like. Yes, it does. Um, I feel like we always come back to the Beatles in the long run. Anyway. Well, it's got the harmonies. All of it's music got... comes back to the Beatles in the long run, except for what was made before the Beatles. We can make this podcast really short every week and just yeah. go. They were influenced album. by the Beatles. This sounds Walk like away. the Beatles and then just shut it down. <laughs> play the play the podcast opening. This is Matthew and Kyle. This song sounds. This album sounds like the Beatles. And play the theme song again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's perfect. And we're done. And we're done. So yeah, I do kind of hear uh, Doctor John as a psychiatrist. Hmm. Kind of, he's kind of laying it out on the table for him, and he seems to be in this constant state of breakups and hookups, one night stands, maybe. And it's an endless cycle, and he thinks his parents would be disappointed or are disappointed in the way he's living his life, and he can't find any resolution for that. And again, sometimes ambiguity and lack of resolution is a good thing in songs, and sometimes it's so frequently your point mm-hmm. that it kind of loses. It's, it's, a, it's a boy who cries wolf type thing. Like At some point, you're going to need to resolve some of these issues for me. Like They yeah. can't all hang out there in the breeze. So... That's uh that that's Doctor John for me. I um, like it. So it's very much. I I, th- I think you're on the right track. I don't know if if there's connectivity between the two songs or not, or if it just happens that they ended up in that order, right? Because I still kind of feel like too. Uh, I feel like "Blame It on the Girls" was the original opener to this album, and mm-hmm. they put "We Are Golden" at the beginning because it was going to be the hit. I don't know where else oh, it would have yeah. gone in this, but I just feel like the opening to "Blame It on the Girls" with the the kind of monologue, you know, I was sitting at the bar, blah, 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 blah. I kind of feel like that would have been the album opener, hmm. but they, that's a good it. thought. Yeah. I could Th- see that. That's a little bit more technical, but no, but that's what we're doing here. That's what we yeah. do to break things down a little more technically. And what's funny when I was listening to it, I was listening to it on my walks and I kept listening to this record. And what, what is strange is that like they kept being a, a song at the end of the record that's not on the record for whatever reason with whatever, however it was playing in Spotify, it would play another of his songs, something, oh. something ballerina. So I can't remember what I can't remember something. I can't there remember. Are, the, so that's another thing we should probably talk about. Uh, when you go looking for Mika's albums, uh, there are like 10 versions of every album. <laughs> so, there's like the original release version, and right. then there'll be an extended release version that has a couple of extra tracks, and then there'll be like the extended summer release version that has the extended version plus a couple of remixes, and then there'll be the extended acoustic version that has some acoustic versions of some of the songs on it, and then there'll be like the live at you know whatever live at the Roundhouse in London edition, and it's this the album played beginning to end live. And then they'll be like, at the end of that, they'll be like, oh, and here's two tracks from, you know, unreleased yet that were done live. It's very uh, It's a little difficult. frustrating. It is. It's hard to keep up with. 
So I kept um, having the same song, this ballerina song at the very end. <laughs> and I was getting really pissed because I'm like, that song does not belong on this record. I'm like, hello, <laughs> Katy Perry. Cause it sounds, it sounds like a Katy Perry vehicle. And I, and I want, I had this big long thing written about how, um, I'm, I'm a, a music aficionado when it comes to last songs on records. Mm-hmm. I think the last song on, on a record is almost equally important as the first song on the record because it's the last thing that you take with you when you listen to a record as a full yeah. package, not as you do it now. And I, and I, I was very angry about the fact that you would, why would you end a record with such a weak song? It was very frustrating. And then turns out it's not on the record at all. <laughs> so I had to throw out those pages of you know vitriol. I'm like, F this and just slammed down. So anyway, that's a, moment for another time that's fine <laughs> i uh, see you i see you is the next song yes, on this album also i do see you man yeah i could see you it's another american idol moment for me it is oh, wait sorry i take that back it's more of a so you think you can dance oh as a go. contemporary dance piece moment it's definitely a slowdown piece right. all of a sudden in the middle of this right. album. It's such a dramatic shift from the rest of the record i can visually see this song in my head on so you think you can dance solo piano center stage Lights from the side, one key light from the top, oh, right. starting tight on his fingers playing, and then a slow dissolve to a wide shot at the piano. It pretty much directs itself. Yeah. The one thing I do love about this song, though, is it really does highlight, he's a fantastic piano player. And, oh, really? Yeah. And I think that this starts to kind of highlight it. You really don't hear it in a lot of the songs uh, until, if you listen to, I think it's the next album that has, uh, if you buy, if you get the extended version the double extended version with the double platinum case that's the limited edition. Uh, it has a bunch of the tracks done acoustically, and it's just him playing the piano and singing and sometimes a guitar. And it's the songs are almost better that way than they are originally hmm. in some cases. Like there's a song called I Only Love You When I'm Drunk that uh, the acoustic version I love way better than the regular version. But. Let me clarify, too, my points by saying that uh, I think it's the most powerful song on the record Ooh. precisely because of the way it's structured. Not all American Idol is bad. And this certainly hits a very specific emotional note musically. Lyrically, uh, what I hear is this guy who really wants to go up and talk to this guy or girl and has wanted to for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And in his head, he has constructed this whole relationship from his point of view with him or her, and because there's really no way that they that could ever live up to this perfect presentation in his head, it's best if he never lets it happen and would ruin his vision. So he is just content to just watch them from afar. And it's kind of really stalkery, definitely. <laughs> but when you have an ideal in your head, sometimes you just don't want to ruin it with reality. And I feel like that's what he was headed for there. Hmm. I like that. That's my feeling. I could be way off, but but that's what I see. The uh, next track is Blue Eyes, which is totally like this is a Paul Simon Afro beat. It, you, I mean, it's just so like this Calypso-ed. could. Yeah, you could take this and drop it on a Paul Simon album and I wouldn't know. I'd be like, I don't remember this song. Yeah, it's it's so bouncy. Yeah. Counter to the sad story. Yeah. So it's interesting. If he's nothing, if Mika is nothing else, he is extremely observant. Yes. So I feel like while almost all of his songs could be autobiographical, I also believe that none of them are ever entirely autobiographical, at least none on this record. Mm-hmm. There's this implied distance on so many of his songs, 
Uh, I looked up what he wrote about this song, and he said it's about a woman who loses her heart on the subway. Literally. Like More, it, like it literally pops out of her stomach and squishes around on the floor? Well, there's a line in the song that says, he's looking for your heart in the lost and found. Oh. And he's quite, he said more, he probably saw a sad woman sitting on the subway and constructed this whole uh, story around her, quite actually just staring at her, wondering this. I'm talking about blue eyes, blue eyes. What's the matter, matter, blue eyes, blue eyes. What's the matter, matter, so blind, so blind. What's the matter, matter, blue eyes, blue eyes. What's the matter with you? Yeah, so it's 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 poppy. It is. It's. I really like the song. It's good, but he's clearly watching her from a distance and constructing this whole story about what happened to her. Which you know, yeah, it's good songwriting. I would agree. It's it's very um, it's very much like a like a comedian. You can't have everything happen to you, so you make stuff up. Yeah, you, you have say, to have some you say, sort of. Oh, the other day I was doing this, and blah blah yeah. blah blah blah. You have to have some exaggeration. And obviously we know that most, you know, songwriters and musicians do that, but it's interesting to me that he would come right out and say, oh no, this is inspired by a lady I saw on the subway. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Maybe the tube. Uh, he, be- he, I believe, yeah, I paraphrased. That's okay. He did say tube or underground or whatever. That's okay. Good Gone Girl. Good Gone Girl. I still think this song is about two drag queens named Georgia and April. <laughs> <laughs> I- yeah, that's... Yes. I, like, mm-hmm. Just all the lyrics to me. I mean, just when she adored you, the whole room would get to know. That sounds like a drag queen. <laughs> like a movie that is filled with lust coming at you with a double D bust. That yeah. Sounds like a drag queen. Hanging out in the fancy bars with the boys who can play guitar. Listen up because I've got to warn you. She's going to make it out in California. Mm. Sounds like a drag queen. It does sound like a gr- yeah. or Or maybe just somebody who's uh, who wants to go away and be in movies. But to me... Like this song sounds a lot like two drag queens. Cause especially this was the line I was looking for. Could you believe the same old phonies, those painted ponies that you've ridden all before? Mm. I don't know. To me, it immediately said two drag queens, but maybe I'm horribly wrong. Well, one name that comes to mind the second this song starts playing is Freddie Mercury. Yes. Especially on the verses. Of course is not so much, but oh my gosh. This could easily be a Queen song if oh, Freddie had easily. survived. And I hate to say it, but Adam Lambert has nothing on the versatility of Mika's voice. Nothing. It is incredible and definitely shines on this particular song. And see, I had lyrically, I wrote down lyrically, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> song about a girl who wants to make it in L.A., is willing to do pretty much anything to get there, and is clearly not working out for her. Wordplay in it is great and interesting. And again, it's produced wonderfully. So you're probably right. I'm probably way off. That's that's one of the fascinating things about it, though. Is you can I think you can interpret it either way, and who's to say that either either way that it's interpreted is right or wrong? I said no. I, <laughs> I think that's what's fascinating about it, though, is that it's you, you can. There's so much double meaning in all of these songs that we can listen to it and not come to a consensus about it, and not immediately be like, "That's about this." It shouldn't ever be like that, should it? You shouldn't ever have such a straightforward interpretation of something that everybody looks at it and goes, I know that's about that. I think that that's the difference between good lyrics and bad lyrics in a song. 
is if it if it's a song that's supposed to be about something. If it's just some nonsense song, then whatever. But you mean like like Van Halen or something? Yeah, you know. <laughs> but if it's <laughs> if it's something that you are trying to tell a story or trying to make a point, I think that you should either have it open enough for interpretation that people can look at it and say, this is what I think about it. And the next person can think of something completely different. And that's good because people actually have to think about it. Or if you really want it to be, I want this to be a song about a tree that was in my backyard or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you write that song very directly. It has a place, but nobody's going to misinterpret it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. People might try, but I think that that's just because you weren't, We've gotten so used to trying to, you know, uncover the metaphor that is the tree in the, the tree in the backyard. What is a tree? Represented his teen angst. Uh, you sure it wasn't just a tree? It was teen angst. Okay, teen angst. You're right. Touches you. Whoa. All right. Well. Well. I thought we were going to record a podcast. No, that's where right. we got to this. Uh, so the next song is called "Touches You." Oh, all right. Oh. Oh. This is a weird part of the record that kind of gets lost in the sameness of yeah music music musically they all kind of blend together around this time of the record he seems to be channeling uh george michael on this one mm-hmm. which is weird because i had not heard that in his voice until this point but i can't seem to leave you alone damn it touching you Tell me that doesn't sound like just a more sped up version of father figure. It absolutely does. I mean, even the lyric, I want to be your father figure is in there. Lyrically, I read a lot of people online are creeped out by this song. But for me, this is more saying I want to be all things to you. I feel like some of the reviews that I wrote, some of the critical stuff that I wrote is probably written by like 15 year olds. Ah, They're like, yeah, it's gross. They're like, no, the person... They want to be the person you go to for everything. So I'll be your brother. I'll be your sister, your mother, your father, all the things that you need in your life. I will be that. Whatever it is you need at the moment is what I will be. So more of like an emotional support type of a situation. Yes. than Whatever a, touches you. Then like I don't a, think the touching is in a literal sense, but more what touches the heart. Like what's impacting you. I will be that. More more emotional than a, of course. a, a daddy situation. I don't yeah. I don't feel like it's daddy. Like the brother you want <laughs> the brother he wants to touch the brother. Like oh. Oh I would I would tend to agree with that. I Cindy feel like Cindy from it's, Oklahoma uh, City. It's okay. It's okay. Did Cindy from Oklahoma City write this in two thousand seven or eight? Because now <laughs> she's probably in her mid twenties. Exactly. So, yeah, She's like, why did C- I write that? Cindy, get in touch with us and tell us if you've uh, changed your mind and grown emotionally. I hope you did. I hope so too. I like it yeah. because because again, it takes me back to that. Right, it's a very eighties pop song, and that sound while you're walking that it's a pretty cool sound. I like it. By the time, uh-huh. with uh, Imogen Heap, I think uh, this is a this great one. song. Oh, this is such a good song, and it's so sad. Does anybody else remember the nineties band Savage Garden? Yes, of course. I get that a lot of right away from this song. Um, co-writer, like you said, Imogene Heap, and that's very evident. And it sounds more like a Heap song or a Fru-Fru song than yeah. it does a Mika song, which is okay. But that female counter voice in it, it's a lot less poppy. 
Mm-hmm. A little more jazzy, which is a nice change of pace. So yeah, talk about the lyrics. Oh, I was going to say, I there's a lot of debate on this song, whether it is somebody singing about a relationship that's ending or somebody singing about a partner that died. That's what I have. Or somebody singing about a child that died. Mm. And I, I don't know. Again, it kind of goes back to our, you know, it depends on how the listener interprets it. So I definitely feel like this is could be about a relationship that's falling apart, or it could be about somebody that died, either a, a close relative or somebody that you were just close with through a relationship. Again, I feel like it was intentionally written to be somewhat vague about it so that you can interpret it as you want. It's the way I read it. It's, a, it's definitely to me about a relationship in which one of the two people commits suicide. It's the first time for me anyway, on this record where the music matches the gravity of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty, pro- uh, they mesh together. It's very powerful how they mesh together. Lines like uh, the blissful unaware and don't wake me up and stuff like that, where it's just, they want to be sad mm-hmm. and they want to be left alone to just kind of imagine like that didn't happen, but you left me to clean all this shit up. Like I'm being left to clean up all this mess, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's a great record or a great song. Uh, it's a wonderfully constructed song. And some of me wants to attribute that more in 2009 to Imogene Heap mm-hmm. than him based on her track record and the rate, the way she writes like very specific moody stuff. Yes. Um, but, and I would say that's probably fair. But what do it, I know? At I that time, know. it was probably a, uh, I feel like that that this collaboration probably came about because they had met somewhere or somebody connected the two of them would be my feeling. Again. I don't want to say that someone else's interpretation of it is wrong because I can act, absolutely see reading the lyrics. Oh, yeah. It would be about it could be about a child, or it could be just about the disillusion of a relationship or whatever. But to me, that was uh, the way I read it, the way I heard it, um, was that way. It was, it was pretty powerful. In all honesty, that is the first place my brain went when I was reading the lyrics for this. Was like, oh, this is about somebody committing suicide. But then you know, looking online, there's a lot of people who don't think so. Hmm. And it's kind of unusual to me because that really is the first spot where you go. But yeah, again, different people, different interpretations. Different strokes. For different folks. Correct. One Foot Boy is Kyle's favorite song. Oh, God. (laughs) This is uh, immediately after a nice, sad uh, song. Back to some weird pop music. This one didn't resonate with me at all. I I knew this one would not. I feel like this one and the next one probably... This one sounds like it was stitched together from pieces left over from songs that are on the record. <laughs> I, I don't know. If that's intentional, then he's a freaking genius because it, it works like a like a reprise. Yeah. Uh, but I don't feel like he did it on purpose. No. It does have a lot of, like you said, it has elements of everything else on the record, but it doesn't have, I don't know, this song to me, it, it never really stuck with me. So One Foot Boy, tell, uh, tell me what you think that is, Kyle. What's the One Foot <laughs> I think he's implying that it is the uh, the you know the angel and devil on your shoulder. Yeah, your conscience. Yeah, he's yeah. implying that that's what it is. It's literally he's seeing somebody sitting on his shoulder saying, "No, it's okay. Go talk to that person. Go, you know, they they might like you. Go talk to them." But he can't do it for whatever reason because the other one foot boy on his other shoulder is saying, "No, don't. They're gonna hate you. You're gonna be exposed." Blah 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 blah. Of course, there's another meaning to the term one foot boy, which could mean that uh, there's a very short person that uh, exists that was uh, uh, born with, uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, genetic condition where they, they literally only grew to be a foot tall. Oh, 
That's not where you expected me to go with that, was it? No. That's not where I was intending to go with that either. <laughs> it's a penis, everybody. Oh. It's a big penis. It's a one foot, huh? Yeah. You know, he's too shy to go confront this person who he thinks is good looking, and then he ends up seeing him in the men's room, and he's uh, mm. uh, packing heat. Let's right. put it that way. So I, I don't know. Again, <laughs> so I, I don't know. Uh, so I don't know. He but to refers me, to the one foot boy as being eleven stone. Yes, eleven stone is one hundred and fifty four pounds. Yep, which he is a smallish man. Miko yes. is not a very tall man. That sounds about right. So maybe the boy. That's what maybe the boy is his conscience. Could be. So one hundred fifty four pounds. If you got if you're packing one hundred and fifty four pound heat. Yeah. Good. Somebody's for you. gonna get hurt. It's like a as big around as a dinner plate. <laughs> tuna can tuna oh, so, tuna can i miss you so uh, if you're listening tuna can write in tell us what your favorite <laughs> album is info at audiojudo.com that's true very good very good yeah oh i like the promotion that's good thanks I'm trying uh next one is uh toy boy i hate this song do you i think this song could have been left off this album and it would have been better this sounds to me it's plucked right out of a broadway musical it is it sounds like like a a weird like you know the first song that they play after the intermission to like warm everybody back up you know even his delivery yeah which he's got complete command of is spot on for a musical oh it the way absolutely he's affecting is. his voice based on the lyrics I'm sure that that's the point mm-hmm. so am I supposed to take these song uh, lyrics of this song literally or is it a stand-in for bisexuality? Based on all the interviews I've read, he likes to create worlds in which characters exist, but not necessarily tell autobiographical stories. Yes. So it becomes this gray area about what his meaning really is. So I don't know. Is it little girl has a doll and she's poking his eyes out like a voodoo doll with pins and and shit? Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's a very, (laughs) uh, it's very veiled. And like I said, I feel like this is a song that was written quickly and it was written while he was working on other stuff for this album. And he's like, yeah, let's find a spot for it on here. And it just kind of got thrown in here because to me, it doesn't fit with any of the other stuff on the album with the exception of maybe lyrically, but it just doesn't, I don't know. I think this album would have been better without it, but it's the only song on here I really don't like. And so many people do like it. Yeah. Which I don't, again, I was talking to Cindy in Oklahoma City. (laughs) I know you like it. It's because Cindy in Oklahoma City was a theater kid. And Mm. so they're immediately like, yay. Yay. This reminds me of Rent. I love rent. <laughs> Yay. Yay. So yeah, not my favorite on the record. But then. You just leave it there. Pick up. Good news. Off the floor. Pick up off the floor. It picks up off the floor and ends this album. Like I was saying, this one track to me is like him saying, and this is what I'm going to sound like now that I'm an adult. Right. So I don't think it's the best song on the record. No. However, I think that it is the sound that suits him best. I would agree. So I prefer this sound form uh, when he steers clear of uh, pop generally. Mm-hmm. And it, I kind of, this kind of reminds me a bit of Lady Gaga, who yes. he's been friends with. And when they stay in pop music, it really kind of dilutes their artistry. Mm-hmm. They can get all the window dressing of slick production and all that. But when they strip it down to the voice and some limited accompaniment, it allows their true creativity to shine. Pick your love up off the floor When your mama says you stop it Black girl, let me tell you more If he's 9 to 5 or 22 Boy, he's gonna do what he's gonna do 
It's interesting to me that you brought up Lady Gaga because to me there are weird parallels between the two of them. They both uh, they both sort of rose to prominence at the same time. They both write music for other people. Mm. Um, they both go by like a moniker or a nom de plume. Nom de plume. Nom de plume. Um, yeah, and they both kind of did the same thing. They made a bunch of poppy songs, even though their strengths are actually not in that area. Definitely. And they did it because they felt like they're like, yeah, this is what I want to do. But what what sells records and gives you the um, the opportunity to do what you're really what you really want to be doing and like gaga can she could like just slam out a pop song in like 10 minutes oh yeah and everyone's gonna like all the the i don't know what they're called I little can't. monsters i think that's is what she refers to them yes as. they're all gonna eat it up oh yeah and just gonna make her like buku dollars but that's not i don't feel like that's where her heart is anyway i feel like her jazz stuff is really yeah. where she wants to be and or movie stuff but really letting that that artistry kind of come out and stretch your legs and do something different so that's what i feel yeah so i would agree all in all it's a pretty good record you know it's not gonna it's not gonna make any top whatever lists for yeah. me but it's an interesting listen and i feel good about adding it to kind of like that music base yeah i probably won't seek it out but i would definitely uh recommend it to people that enjoy Kind of like that high sheen pop sound, and there are plenty of people out there oh, that, yeah. that eat it up and love it. And what's what I said too was, you know, this to me is one of his weaker records, mm-hmm. and I picked it specifically because it covers that distance between poppy music and what he makes after this. So if you like the poppy stuff, go listen to Life in Cartoon Motion. Um, and then there's usually almost all of his other albums do have one or two pop tracks on them. Like the newest one, there's a pop song called Ice Cream. It's ridiculous. It's the most like poppy, upbeat, bullshit song I've ever heard in my life. Uh-oh. But it, you also get it in your head, and then you're walking on like ice cream, and then it's stuck in there. Oh, I think I've heard that song. Yeah, you probably have. It got a little bit of radio play when it came out at the end of last year. This was my favorite review while doing research is from Spin Magazine. Ooh. Self-absorbed and awkwardly exhibi- exhibitionistic. Miko would be the Bruno of platinum piano pop if he didn't ground his giddiness with old-fashioned chops. This Beirut-born Brit's songwriting craft and vocal dazzle may be flagrantly uncool, but they're also refreshingly unencumbered. Nixing the sappy bits that dampen his debut, he rewrites the hooks from your parents' favorite Bon Jovi, Belinda Carlisle hits into earnest proclamations of teenage eccentricity then waves his jazz hands in the naysayer's face. <laughs> and jazz hands. I'm just reading that, I'm like, first of all... It's a lot of bees. That was a lot of just garbage. <laughs> it just That's too much. Um, I don't know if we talked about the album cover. Oh, no, not um, yet. It's a very unique style, kind of like an old kid's book, old children's book, designed by uh, his sister. Dawak. Mm-hmm. Dawak. Uh, it's and an he, interesting nom de plume. Uh, Mika himself and two other uh, art collaborators. It's a very cool, very cool look. Yeah, it's bright and and fancy. He literally said, uh, uh, "This is from a blog post. It was posted July fifteenth, two thousand nine, on Mika's blog." But he says, uh, "Speaking of packaging, uh, I write to you from my paper laden desk that I have not allowed anyone to clean for over seven weeks." It's covered in bits of art, drawings, cutouts, samples, all prep work for the new album art. It's being done the same way as last time by my sister Dewak, Richard Hogg, and I. Uh, as many of you know, over the past few months, I've been purging visual references from children's picture books from the 40s to the 1970s. 
Uh, there's something dark and magic about a good picture book. And then he goes on for some more. He literally cut pictures out of children's books from the 40s to the 70s to come up with inspiration and ideas for this cover. And you definitely see it on there. I wish I had that kind of time. Oh, wait, I do have that kind of time right now. <laughs> Let's get out the picture books and start cutting. I should just take all my kids' books and just start cutting. Just start Are you thinking a ransom letter? Shh, don't worry about that. <laughs> it's art. It's art. It's art. So that's uh, Mika. The boy who knew too much. There you go. It's a good. It's a good album. It's not going to win any awards in my book, but it's it's definitely a good listen. Yeah, give it a listen and see what you think about it, and then let us know. How would they let us know, Kyle? Well, you can email us uh, info at audiojudo dot com. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at audiojudo on Facebook, uh, facebook dot com forward slash audiojudo. Instagram is uh, at audiojudo, and you can check out our website uh, audiojudo dot com. Uh, and I think you can respond on there as well. Although, yes, you can. I don't know that we check that very often. So, Twitter tw- uh, email is probably the best way to get in touch with us. Yeah, that would be the uh, more effective way. And uh, next, uh, we're going to ramp up our production schedule since we are quarantined. So we're going to do lockdown. We're going to do a little bit more often uh, next week or next next time you'll be listening to us. We're going to do uh, "Throwing Copper" by Live, which. Uh, it's a very special place in my heart. So it's a good record. Um, I hope I don't hate it. I hope you don't hate it either. You have to know some of it. I'm sure I do. Okay, good. That would be weird. Lightning crashes? You don't oh, know yeah. That? Of okay. course I know that song. Okay. Um, but other than that, keep listening. Uh, everybody Please. stay safe out there. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks for being here, everybody. Take care. Bye, everybody. Too much soda. Oh my god. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.